millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Premier League back to its amazing, erratic, gone off its medication self again. League-leading Leicester finally humbled, giving Arsenal a chance to go top. Surely these new gunners wouldn't waste this opportunity. Elsewhere, Louis Van Hall continued to ask how bad he can make Manchester United before Ed Woodward is forced to do something decisive. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be talking about all that, City's rebound, Spurs suddenly becoming the most convincing team in the league, and more. But as I welcome my co-host, Nimpun Chopra, to look back on Boxing Day, we shift our attentions to St. Mary's, where Arsenal had a chance to prove us wrong. Certainly, we stand admonished now, Nipun, ready to repent at the altar of Arsene Wenger. Surely, Arsenal took advantage of the opening they were given on Boxing Day. <laughs> uh, surely they did, right? In, in in a parallel universe, they surely, surely did. Well, uh, you're saying they did. I mean, it must have been a close. It must have been a close game, then, right? Uh, it, in our universe, or in the other one, <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like <laughs> it seems like Arsenal is being given this opportunity. Leicester had a very difficult match at Liverpool, which they lost. So yeah. Arsenal at um, a Southampton team that had been one of the worst in the league over the last month, surely they got three points. Tell me that. Tell me, Nipun, because I want to change the narrative on Arsenal. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. That's exactly what happened. Oh, Arsenal good. won six nothing. Uh, I knew 2015 was going to be different. Santa Claus <laughs> gave us a gift this year. Arsenal at the top of the table. Unfortunately, not. Uh, a great goal in the 18th minute by Cuco Martina. Three second half goals. Southampton 4-0 victors over Arsenal. I think, I want to get your thoughts on the game in general, but I think it's fair to call this, both the result and the magnitude of the result, the surprise of Boxing Day this year. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's a fair assessment of that. Uh, I do think that the game as a whole had bigger more or i guess stronger repercussions for southampton than it does longer repercussions i guess for southampton than it does for arsenal because i think arsenal will still continue to uh, be in the title race will be uh for second or third arguably you know depending on which one of us you ask it's going to be one mm-hmm. of those positions so i think it has doesn't really affect them i think it does affect southampton more actually i think this is uh the kind of result that they needed to get back the confidence because Let's not forget that this Southampton team, almost unchanged, was last year putting up the results that Leicester City is putting up this year. So I think this might be, hopefully, a turning point for Coman's team. Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach it. And it's a good boundary to set on the conversation. Just as we didn't get so excited about Arsenal beating City on Monday, we probably shouldn't get so down about a result, even if it is a four-goal loss to a team that was struggling. How much were they struggling? Well, Southampton hadn't won a game since November 7th. And even then, that was a 1-0 win over Sunderland. Not that impressive. Their last clean sheet was also that November 7th uh, victory. This is their first multi-goal win since November 1st, a 2-0 over Bournemouth. It is their first win against a top-half team all season. And it is their biggest win since beating Milton Keynes 6-0 in the League Cup on September 23rd. So it had been a very bad run for Southampton. Uh, one that we knew their talent could eventually turn around. You alluded to the performance last year. I have to admit, Nipun, I did not see this happening. I didn't see any hints in the matches leading up to this one that Ronald Koeman's team was about to turn it around. No, you're exactly right. In fact, last week... 
with Lawrence, we talked about how there were serious mistakes being made uh, in midfield. I pointed out that at one point they were 6v4 or 5v4, at least at three points in the game last week against Spurs. So uh, in this game, however, it they look like a different team. And you have to wonder, Richard, whether that the statement that Kuman made where he came out and publicly admonished his players last week had sort of the the buoyancy effect that it sometimes does. And and we know it can go both ways, doesn't it? And maybe it's a series of things. Maybe it's that desire to enact an attitude shift throughout the squad. Maybe it's, I don't want to say a lucky goal, but certainly Cuco Martinez goal is not a goal you see every week. Outside, <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> no, thank, well, I don't want to say thankfully because I could watch that goal over and over again. All day. But it was the rare 26, 28-yard shot that was truly unstoppable. Striking yeah, it, it, with the had, outside, it had a little bit of the Roberto Carlos to it, it didn't it? It really did. Striking it with the outside of his right foot, kicked it well wide at Petr Cech's right post, and then it curved back in, giving him no chance to stop that one. Carry that lead into halftime. Counterattack, really beautiful counterattack goal to double the lead, and then a set piece, making it 3-0, eventually on in route to 4-0. I suppose that leads me to one devil's advocate question. Is this just a bad day for Arsenal? The early goal allows Southampton to play on the back foot. Arsenal, we've seen lately, over the last year or so, doesn't mind giving the ball up and letting the other team control the game. Second half, they get caught on the counter. All teams do every once in a while. And then a set-piece goal. It just seems like, to borrow a title that's become a cliche, a series of unfortunate events. I agree. I, I think that's exactly what it was. That's that's how I look at this game. Uh, to add to the four goals you added, let's not forget there were two disallowed goals as well. One for Shane Long for a for a push and then Van Dyke for just mm. offside, marginally offside. So and then let's not forget Long had a couple of other chances as well. So there's no doubt that everything went right for Southampton in this game and everything went wrong for Arsenal in this game. And I think along with the fact that it was a series of unfortunate accidents, I think there was a a, a degree of uh complacency to use another cliche for Arsenal as well as I think coming back to what I said earlier, I think there was a desire from the Southampton players to prove their manager wrong and to set a series of very unfortunate results right in this game. So it's a mixture of things, but like I said, overall, I don't, in no way has this changed my perception of Arsenal. Uh, that's what I was just going to ask you. The difficulty with Arsenal is whether we are holding them to a standard that we don't hold other teams. You talked Mm. about it a little bit on the last podcast where we were talking about Manchester City's injuries in a different way than we talk about Arsenal's. And we got to flush that out a little bit and talk about why that is. Because there seems to be something inherent over the years to Arsenal that makes us consider players' recovery in a different light than recovery for players for other teams. With Arsenal... Inconsistency has been their problem. We talked about that during November where they went through a series of results that they couldn't get full points out of. We Throughout the years, they've had extreme highs that take them into the title race that have Gooners believing that they can actually claim the title that year. And then they go through these inexplicable slides. And I, I think, Nipun, this result is an example of that. This week is an example of that, where Arsenal seems subject to these wild swings more than other teams. And in that way... That underpins the discussions about their mentality, whether they can see out on title race, whether they can accomplish those kind of match-to-match, month-to-month goals that we see teams eventually accomplish in order to claiming these titles. And in that way, like you said, I'm not sure that we've changed how we see Arsenal, but the doubts persist. I think doubts persist for good reason. We we have to we cannot just gauge everything based on instantaneous results we cannot help but look at history and we cannot forget that Arsenal at multiple points have fallen away in the months of February at multiple points have fallen away due to injuries so those things persist even though we try to have a somewhat unbiased uh, analysis of these things but at the at the same rate Richard we also have to remember that some of the criticisms of Arsenal back in the day was that they were great against the smaller sides and were terrible against Man United, against Chelsea. Very uh, they good had, point. Remember, remember, Chelsea could, they'd never beat Chelsea for the longest time. So in some ways, that narrative has switched. So we're essentially retrofitting an overarching statement that isn't really true for the actual things that are going on. That's a very but, good point. Yeah. We have to, we have to remember that although the end point here might be similar, Arsenal unable to fully see out a title challenge. We can't just assume all the symptoms are going to be the same. And for for that reason, we can't assume that 
to use to extend this metaphor that the illness is the same we might end up in the same place with arsenal falling short of a title but that doesn't mean we can use the same logic that we've applied in years past in diagnosing why they might fall short of this title yeah yeah i i, I don't have anything to add to that that's exactly well, let, right. let me let me pose this to you then yeah. do you think it is fair to say yeah. that we are considering Arsenal a more viable contender for this title than we have in years past. But do you think it's fair to say we're doing that because of the weakness of the league this year as opposed to the strength of Arsenal? Good question. I think, uh, as is always the case, it's a mixture of both. I think we cannot uh, make we cannot an- analyze Arsenal in a vacuum because we, we're cognizant of the fact that the rest of the league uh, this is going to definitely going to be a league which is going to be won by the lowest amount of points probably ever. So with that said, we we are obviously realizing that there's a lot of more competition and a lot more points are going to be dropped. Uh, and then again, some of the things we said earlier with Arsenal, some of the things are really are working. I mean, their depth in the forward positions is better than arguably anyone in Europe. Uh, you know, there's some there are teams that have better starting forwards but the depth Arsenal has in those positions is mm. incredible um along with that we talked about last week how they've fallen rather by maybe by accident into the central midfield situation where they have one goal scoring midfielder and one true holding midfielder and somehow they're managing to balance that even in the big games away from home like we, we saw against Olympiacos when they absolutely needed that win and they won comfortably three nothing so there is both an a serious improvement on Arsenal as well as a serious drop uh, in in the potential title challenger, challengers in the league. So overall, I think both are both are true. The serious drop in the potential of the challengers is perhaps embodied most by Manchester United. Nice transition. Thank you. Uh, after last week's disappointment, Manchester United seem to be going into the Britannia this weekend in must-win mode. And in that sense, I feel a little sorry for Louis van Gaal and Nipun because a Memphis Depay error, a long-distance yeah. goal, had them down two goals after 26 minutes. At the same time, the inept attack that has been the Achilles heel of this United team basically meant that two-goal margin, no matter what happened over those last 64 minutes, was going to hold up. Stoke with a 2-0 victory over Manchester United. Your thoughts on the Red Devils' performance? First of all, even as a United supporter, I I was kind of laughing at that Memphis Depay goal because it was almost... Uh, I don't know if you saw the graphic, but the, there was a distance of 25 yards between him and De Gea, and the ball, his header traveled a total of three yards. So, you know, <laughs> it, it was a perfect example of how things are just not going right for Man United and for Louis Van Hall. And I actually agree with you. I saw Van Hall's uh, midweek press conference I saw his press after the game and there's definitely a sense of resignation and I do feel bad for him because whatever you say he he, he is always even if you disagree with his philosophy which I do uh, you you cannot you cannot say that he's not an honest man he's not a man that he wants to win and he, he comes across as someone that you would probably enjoy being around as long as you weren't talking about football so in that sense there was definitely a sense of uh, pity from my sense, uh, from myself, and I'm sure other United supporters and and the footballing world at large, at the re- at what clearly was a realization in Louis Van Gaal's head that oh my God, this is this is it. I mean, this, th- there's no way back from where we are right now. Game played out very much like Manchester City's visit to the Britannia a few weeks ago. Stoke got oh, yeah. a couple of early goals, uh, held on to that lead. The only difference, Manchester City actually showed some fight throughout the rest of the match. Manchester United, although they doubled. Stoke City's shot on target total. Stoke City only had three shots on target. Manchester City, six. Two-nil result pushes United a little bit farther from the top four. I'll say this, though, Richard. I thought that United played much better in the second half than they did in the first half. I think they did show some desire in the second half. But, again, the, the problem is that even when you do have some... Uh, you have players who show passion, like Mata is a player that showed passion in the game. You have other players that... Carrick, I think, showed some passion in the game. But in general, I think the rest of the team is really devoid of confidence. And I think that is really what is going to get Louis van Gaal fired, is the fact that even after his, what was apparently a mythical team talk midweek, uh, he could not rally the team. And the, the first half performance was 
terrible. Let me ask you about one thing, Nipun, because we have a match, Manchester United and Chelsea on Monday. We'll talk about that later in the show, but you can justify the quick turnaround from Boxing Day as the reason that Louis van Gaal might still be in a job now if Manchester United is leaning towards replacing him. But another thing that each day, with each day that goes by that happens is we see this link between Jose Mourinho and Real Madrid go stronger. I was actually reading some more reports about that before we started recording today. And although that link seems a little illogical, given how Mourinho left Real Madrid, logic doesn't really apply itself very often at the Santiago Bernabeu. And if you ascribe to the notion that part of moving on from Van Gaal right now is the availability of somebody who is an obvious successor, if stylistically not exactly what a lot of Manchester United fans want, then doesn't this create a bit of a race? If Manchester United wants to get their season back on track, they either need to move on from Van Gaal or make some promise to Mourinho before Real Madrid moves on from Rafa Benitez. Yeah, as far as the the likelihood of him going back, we could, we would have said the same thing about Mourinho going back to Chelsea, right? Because he left Chelsea on very acrimonious terms uh, with the owner. So I don't think that will be an issue for Mourinho. Uh, as long as he goes to a club where he can win, um, it, he, he's happy to to make amends for, at least for the short term. And similarly with Real Madrid, I mean, let's be honest, they, they really don't care about anything except for uh, winning games. So um, I don't think that there's anything that would hold uh, Mourinho back from signing for Real Madrid. So coming to the other question you asked, uh, it, it is a risk because we don't know what the priority is at this time for the board. If the priority for the board, Richard, is that we have to get the top four at the end of the season, then you have to either keep Van Hall or you have to uh, get a manager who is has some experience, which pretty much rules out everyone's favorite, Ryan Giggs. Uh, because, you know, you can't have a manager come in, a new un- inexperienced manager come in and expect him to get fourth. So if we were to take, a, if we were to sign Ryan Giggs as the permanent manager, it's pretty much a, a declaration by the board that the rest of the season is a write-off. And what message does that send? Because there are long-term repercussions of that, because that means next for a year, there'll be no Champions League, Champions League football. Uh, are you going to be attract other players knowing the style of Man United? So there, there are a lot of things that the board has to decide at this point. And I think that all ties into the hesitancy and some of the reasons why Van Hall is still the manager of Manchester United. United and Arsenal slips were two of the biggest stories from Boxing Day, but they weren't the only ones on a Saturday that continued after United's loss with Aston Villa. Trying to reach Remy Gard's 10-win target, having to pull back an Aaron Cresswell goal at Villa Park, eventually drawing with West Ham 1-1. Bournemouth seemed set to be countered into submission by Crystal Palace, but held the Eagles without a shot on target as the teams drew 0-0 at Dean Court. Chelsea got a brace from Diego Costa, but also gave up goals to Odin Agalu and from the spot, Troy Deeney, as Watford earned a 2-2 at Stamford Bridge in Goose Heenix's return. Liverpool kept lead leading Leicester in check and leveraged Christian Benteke's second-half goal for a 1-0 win at Anfield. Manchester City put Monday's troubles behind them with a big day from Kevin De Bruyne as Sunderland were handed a 4-1 loss at the Etihad. Swansea is back in the win column at West Brom's expense with an early Keesung Young goal holding up for a 1-0 win in Wales and a 92nd-minute goal from Tom Cleverley gave Everton a 1-0 victory at Newcastle. With Leicester and Arsenal losing, three teams are within three points at the top of the table. The Foxes keep their perch with 38 points through 18 rounds. Arsenal are two back, followed by City on 35. Then Spurs are fourth with 32. At the bottom of the table, West Brom, Bournemouth, Chelsea, Swans, and Norwich are all within three points of the drop, but Newcastle, with their loss, have slipped back to 18th with just 17 points. Sunderland is five points back with Aston Villa, chipping away, still with only eight points through 18 rounds. When we come back, we'll shift our focus to Anfield, where Jurgen Klopp was able to get Liverpool back on track. Stay with us. You're listening to the World Soccer Talk podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully your holidays, your Boxing Day were as good as ours. We're all here, so I'm assuming we had good Boxing Days. We don't actually talk about these things on air, off air. We don't know anything about each other. Uh, but let's give you a little bit of insight. I do want to, still want to know about your childhood. You did not answer that last week. So. <laughs> I did not answer that. We're not going to. Anything you hear from me in that regard is a lie. It, the funny thing about me, well, 
one of many funny things about me. I'm a hilarious person. Uh, if you go online to search me, you can almost find no information about me, at least without digging a little deeper, because there was a uh, an office shooting incident about 20 oh, years ago regarding some, with somebody having my same name. So if you go and search for Richard Farley online, you will find somebody that is currently in prison in California for something that is very bad. I'm sure that's actually helped me on a lot of background checks in my yeah, life. Is, is that why every time you call me, it says uh, there's a collect call from... Uh, Portland prison. Is that why it's no? Always it's because we're actually the third season of Serial. <laughs> That's why it says that. Uh, this week, everybody, we're going to be coming to you with a midweek show. In all likelihood, it will be me and Lawrence McKenna, who wasn't available this weekend. Apparently, he has family, and Napoon and I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, next next weekend, Kartik Krishnayar is going to be back on the show along with Lawrence McKenna as we wrap up the weekend's action with our weekly review show. Let's go to what we thought was going to be the marquee matchup of the weekend. And I think it still was the marquee matchup, even though it didn't have the implications or the fireworks of some of the other matches. But Liverpool won nothing victory over Leicester City. Christian Benteke with a second half goal should have had a second goal in stoppage time. That was mm-hmm. kind of a funny moment. But just the numbers on this one tell you a little bit about how this played out. We know Leicester doesn't mind sitting back. But they were outshot 25-7 to in this game. They only got three shots on target. And for a Liverpool team that was coming into the weekend with a lot of questions in defense, not only fitness-wise with their back two that is now missing Martin Skirtle for five more weeks, but also in goal where Simone Mignolet and Adam Bogdan have been error-prone throughout the last couple months, getting that clean sheet, the first time anybody this year has shut out Leicester City, that's very impressive to me. Yeah, it is very impressive. I, I think, uh, like we've talked about, there's definitely a sense of uh, Klopp building something. And in this game, it wasn't the, the the usual things that we consider him building, which is pressing and and harrying the opponents. It was actually a very uh, calm performance in some ways, very, a lot of uh, moving the ball around, not a lot of uh, crazy tackling, which which uh, we I guess we would associate with a uh, Klopp side in midfield. I think having uh, Lucas on the bench probably <laughs> helped with that. I thought some of the things that were interesting from from Liverpool were the fact that Origi started and I thought had a good game until he got injured. Uh, we were all surprised to see Lovren recover and start next to Sako. I thought I, all of us thought he was going to be injured. Uh, Leicester were better in the second half, but you have to say Liverpool did enough to win this game. Firmino started behind Origi. Uh, Origi, as you mentioned, had to um, leave the game in the first half. We saw uh, Jordan Henderson, Emre Chan duo in midfield, Dayan Lovren in central defense, Simo Mignolet back in goal. A lot of changes, subtle changes, I suppose, because we're getting closer to what we think Liverpool's ideal lineup will be. We're still missing some people. Milner, Skirtle, we talked about them. Daniel Sturridge, perpetually missing. Uh, But we are getting closer to the constant team that I, I assume that Jurgen Klopp wants at this point uh, at the, at the same time, let's, let's talk about Leicester came into the weekend yeah. with a, with the lead uh, still have the lead thanks to Arsenal's loss and their loss. But I, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate here and pose a question to you about Leicester that we would pose about Arsenal. When Arsenal <laughs> lost this weekend, a lot of people were saying, well, they essentially gave back the points that they earned against Manchester City, and particularly with City's win over Sunderland. It's like that Monday result never happened, except for the fact that it did happen. With Leicester, it's almost as if we can look at this as if the strides that they made against Chelsea got canceled out by this result. I don't know how much I buy that, Nipun, but do you kind of see how people could resort to that logic regarding Leicester's inability to push on from last week's result? Definitely, I think why I, I see why people say it, uh, but I'm with you. I'm not. I'm not sure that this is the right way to analyze it. I think the, sometimes when people say that, they're, they're thinking in the in terms of Premier Leagues of old, where you had uh, a b- block of two or three teams right on the top who have run away with points, and the other ones are basically fighting for scraps. In that sense, when you have a game where you drop points, it really does matter. It, it matters a lot more. But this year, with the way the league is going, losses here and there really mean nothing in terms of the title race. I, I think we'll we'll continue to see that. And um, so, so when I when when we hear the fact that these points nullified each other, what we're forgetting is that we are one game closer to running out of games. So in that sense, there has been progress because Leicester True. City has got through one more week, one more week closer to 38 games played 
and they're still on top of the table. Yeah, that's a very good way to look at it. And as you were talking, I was wondering if we should change the way we talk about things from uh, being more like a, a long jump competition where we're always worried about the distances and mm-hmm. how, how far people are going to more like a horse race or a car race where the time, we never yeah. worry about the time of exactly. those. We never worry about how fast people are going. We only worry about their position and their position relative to other people and, or rather other cars or horses. I guess there are no people in this equation. <laughs> well, uh, it could be like track, you know. Right, right, exactly. But we... We rarely worry about the actual pace in those uh, situations. We worry about the positioning. And in that sense, maybe we should stop resorting to this, oh, they drop points here, they drop points here. It's more just about what position you are at when that final whistle of the weekend blows. And, and that's a really good analogy now that you made it because if, when you have multiple ra- horses in the race, the closer you're getting to the finish line – the less chances you are that someone is going to take over. So in that sense, that's what Leicester are doing. They're just getting rid of games, getting closer to the finish line, which is 38 games. Uh, and and it doesn't really matter if is, there's a little bit of a, they've lost an inch here or there, but overall they're doing great. And Leicester wasn't flying so high that a loss at Anfield, particularly a one-goal loss, can be seen as bad. Let's move on to a team that we, we do have slightly higher standards for based on the fact they have two Premier League trophies in their trophy case. Manchester City bounces back from Monday's disappointment. 4-1 to one victory over Sunderland. Granted, it was Sunderland, but they got their goals early. They were up by three after 22 minutes. I think this is closer to the City that we've been expecting to see in Boone. Definitely. Obviously, the city, this City team, when they're firing, when Yaya Toure is essentially taking on players and scoring for the second week straight with his left foot, uh, a goal that most people would struggle to score with their, their dominant foot, uh, you have to enjoy the way City plays in these sorts of games. Uh, and again, in this case, we have to remember that this is an extremely, extremely poor Sunderland side. As evidenced by the fact that they allowed Raheem Sterling to score with his head, <laughs> or they allowed Yaya Turi to seemingly carry that ball an extra 10 yards through midfield before getting off that left-footed worm burner for the second goal. Uh, one person that did shine in this game, uh, particularly a service from set pieces, was Kevin De Bruyne. Mm-hmm. T- Kevin De Bruyne is now up to five goals and eight assists in his 14 Premier League appearances, and that's over 1,120 minutes. Now, if you did the math and extended that out to 3,000 minutes, which is the number I tend to use because that's about ends up being about 33 and a third games, so yeah. it accounts for some missing time and injuries. Kevin De Bruyne is on a 13 goal and 21 assist pace for 3,000 minutes. Those are Metsu Ozil numbers there. So definitely a big expenditure during the transfer window, but he is certainly paying off in his production. But let's talk about another person, the person that I think we've come to agree is the person that is the most important player in this year's title race, and that's Vincent Company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Company missed the game on Monday at the Emirates, came on in the second half in this one when the match was seemingly out of reach and only played for nine minutes. And Napoon, as much time as we spend it, spent talking about how City needs to ascertain whether they can get Vincent Company back for a huge stretch of minutes in the second half of this year, this was very bad news for them. Yeah, I mean, wh- how do you react, right, as a manager when you have your your captain come and as a city supporter when you have your captain, your essentially the player that almost guarantees that you'll win a game, come on and last only nine minutes. It's it's got to be incredibly frustrating for both parties. Uh, and I I don't know. I I mean, I'm sure we'll get into whether they need to sign players and stuff, but. The bigger question is why does this keep happening with Vincent Company? Because as far as I know, some of these injury problems that he's had now, he did not have before he came to City. Hmm. It, it may just be a function of age. I think he's 29 years old at yeah. this point. So yep. some players' bodies, every every body is different. And his body may make it so he has to have his calves removed. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> we talk about our top fours a lot. And we've had to spend so much time talking about why, why Arsenal isn't number one. Because they have, throughout the course of this year, looked like the best team in the league for most of the time. And we've had to rely on historic trends and things that we read into the personality of the manager to justify not putting them number one. I will say this. I think the gap between, at least in my mind, City and Arsenal is close enough that if I get any inclination that Vincent Company is not going to be able to play three out of four games throughout the rest of the year, maybe starting yeah. in a couple of weeks. I'm going to slide Arsenal number one. I think it's that close. I think company is that important. I think City has proved that company is necessary for them to have a consistent defense over multiple games. And if he's gone, then Poon, Arsenal to me is the title favorite. 
Uh, that's that's uh yeah i haven't i haven't thought about it in that way uh because every time anyone asks me about city even even though uh what you're saying is objectively correct that that the results are very dependent on company somehow maybe it's just because of the way they play and the the player that he is for me that characterization always goes to yaya Toure and aguero before company but mm-hmm. Having said that, what you're saying is statistically accurate because uh, we saw the statistic when he's on the pitch, City almost never scores. So if you're almost never getting scored on you're, and you have the kind of players they have up top, you're almost always going to win. But uh, I think there's a balance of that. I think based on the fact that the the, the season that City won the title uh, narrowly against Man, uh, from Man United, I think the uh, company did show some of these same fluctuations and they still managed to pull through it. Um, and with that said, I think as long as they have, I don't know, as long as they have three out of four, speaking of numbers, in Aguero, uh, Silva, company, and Toure, three out of those four uh, mm. available for any decent amount of time, I think they're still favorites. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing, way to look at it too. And uh, that certainly appeals to me because throughout most of this year, those three haven't been, on, those four haven't been on the field at the same time. In fact, mm-hmm. for large portions of this campaign, only one of those players has been on the field. That's Yaya Toure, and then yeah. his effort has been questioned. So right. maybe we should look at it as the number of areas that City can shore up and not necessarily focusing on just one area. Uh, we talked about City's defense under with Vincent Kompany, how so rare that they concede when he's on the field. Let's shift to the t- the league's best defense at this point. It was Arsenal a little while ago, but yeah. now Tottenham has the league's best defense. They are now fourth in the league after their 3-0 victory this weekend against Norwich City. They're tied for the league's best goal difference with City and Arsenal, plus 17. They have the best Pythagorean uh, goal difference for people who know and care what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the league's best defense. They've Since losing two weeks ago, they've scored five. They haven't conceded. Harry Kane, with his uh, brace this weekend, is up to 11 goals and 18 appearances. I say all that to ask the obvious question, Nipun. <sighs> How seriously should we be taking Spurs as a part of this title race? Uh, I, I can <laughs> not hear seriously our, at all. Yeah, not for me. I, I, again, maybe it's just the history of it. But I, I think the the big one for me, speaking of Pythagorean things, the the triangle, the Pythagorean triangle they have of Dembele, uh, Deer, and Dele Alli. If they can, uh, Dyer, sorry, if they can keep those three guys uh, fit. And consistent. That that's the big one. I think the fitness will be less important than the consistency because we know the youth of this Spurs squad. If they continue to be consistent uh, and fit, okay, maybe we can talk about top four. But for me, they're heavily reliant on that 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 Pythagorean triangle as well as, of course, Harry Kane. So we'll see. Maybe February. I always say February. Maybe February we can talk about uh, some of those things. The thing that's most impressive to me about Spurs is. At the beginning of the season, and we particularly saw it when this player was out for a stretch of time, they seemed really dependent on Christian Eriksen. Mm-hmm. They went through these periods of time where they couldn't score goals in a very spursy way, and it happened to coincide with Eric- Eriksen's absence. But now Eriksen is back, and he's not being a decisive factor in these wins, yet Spurs are still winning decisively. And to me, that shows that there's a little bit more diversity in their attack. Some of these players that are so talented that haven't been whispers for that long, Deli Ali being one who has been great, but players like him and Son take some time to bet in. If that is happening and Spurs do have more than one player who can be decisive, well, that obviously bodes better for their title aspirations. The one thing for me is that they're six points back at this point. So that's, yeah, that's, a, a, that's a little bit of bigger of a gap and those points might prove, might prove easy to overcome, but at the same point, they are starting farther back in this title race that st- that begins again each week. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I, I the, especially what you were talking about as far as the lack of uh, one focus. Maybe, maybe Harry Kane is the one focus, but the Ericsson thing is interesting because they've had some serious turnover in that attacking midfielder positions uh, in the few years. Obviously, Gareth Bale played on the left, but he played behind the striker sometimes. Um, then they had Van der Vaart who left. Uh, Sigurdsson, who was a flop at Spurs. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of others, other players that played that position. So maybe there's a sense that Spurs, that they've resigned themselves to the fact that there will be turnover of players who succeed in those positions. Uh, and Modric, of course, who played a little bit further back than the attacking midfielder position. And they've essentially tried to, uh, spread out the load of, of, uh, uh, 
of of excellence, I guess. And it's maybe it's working. Maybe that's the way forward with Pochettino. One other game this weekend didn't have a lot of action. In fact, it only had three shots, shoot three, three shots <laughs> on target. Uh, Bournemouth born Crystal Palace playing to a nil nil. Midweek we analyzed this game as seemingly setting up perfect for Crystal Palace, but mm-hmm. they weren't able to actually get their counter going, especially after the first twenty minutes of the match. But I do want to get your your thoughts on Bournemouth, Nipun. Mm-hmm. They're now six unbeaten after going through a five match losing streak which of those two teams do you think is more more indicative of the cherries that we're going to see going forward the team now that has risen to i believe they're in 13th place at this point or do you think that there is another regression another losing streak in them in in bournemouth you mean right not not palace right um i don't know who do they play next i haven't seen their schedule i think that might because they've played a few tricky games here recently. They've beaten United and Chelsea. Well, it's funny you should mention who they play next on Monday. Arsenal. They are at the Emirates, and then Jeez. next next Saturday they Leicester go City. to Leicester. So, okay, so there's Arsenal, Leicester City, Birmingham uh, in the FA Cup, I think. Then West Ham, and then North City. So you could say that you. Uh, I mean, so let's just be honest. If you're a Bournemouth supporter and you lose to Arsenal and Leicester City, fair enough. Uh, you get a decent tie, a uh, decent result against Birmingham, and then the ones you focus on are West Ham and North City. Uh, with the way West Ham are playing right now, and the uh, fact that we know North City is struggling for uh, any sort of uh, uh, consistency and and performance, you say for any team in Bournemouth's position, if you can get two wins out of four, regardless of the level of opposition, that's pretty good, right? So, with having said that, I would say for five next five uh, four games in the Premier League, they can win two out of four, and that's pretty good. I agree with you. Everybody, we're going to take our second break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Chelsea-Watford match, Everton's late victory at Newcastle, and we're also going to take a dip into the championship to update people on the potential Premier League sides come next fall. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. There's no real action in Europe this week, so let's shift our focus to something that's more relevant to the Premier League, the championship, where Itar Karanka's Middlesbrough went into Boxing Day with a two-point lead at the top of the second division. Unfortunately for Borough, their match at recovering Blackburn was postponed, opening the door for Derby County to take the top spot in the league after their 2-0 win over visiting Fulham. A little farther down, Hull City is now within three points of first after their 3-0 win over Burnley. Draw Machine Brighton is also within three of Derby, though they're now winless in four after their 0-0 Boxing Day opener at Brentford, while the league's final playoff spot right now is occupied by Ipswich, who stay one point ahead of Sheffield Wednesday after their 2-1 win over Queen's Park Rangers. If the season ended today in the championship, Darby and Borough would be back in the first division with Hull, Brighton, Burnley, and Ipswich left to fight it out in the playoffs for the last promotion spot. Nipun, our players of the week, I'll go ahead and go first. And this is one of those weeks where I'm getting a little bit, a little bit open-minded. I'll, I'll give myself, <laughs> I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt and not cast this completely negatively where I could deviate to Harry Kane, Diego Costa, Shane Long, one of these multi-goal scorers, but I went searching this week. I, I thought Rob Elliott was going to be my player of the week until that late goal, Tom Cleverly, where his punch just didn't clear the penalty area and he left his goal yeah. vacant. In that same game, I thought Barkley, Lukaku played well, maybe just didn't have enough to go over the top. And I thought about giving Martina this honor just purely based on a strike that we rarely, rarely see. <laughs> Then I kind of wanted to give it to Christian Benteke for missing that late goal in Anfield. And I kind of wanted to give it to Oscar for missing his penalty kick <laughs> at Stamford Bridge. But ultimately, I'm going with Simon Francis. Um, I think even a lot of people who listen to this podcast might not fully recognize that name because he is a defender for Bournemouth. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about Bournemouth. And I, I honestly doubt even the most ardent Premier League fan watches Bournemouth that often. But Francis is somebody who started the year at right back and formed a great partnership with Matt Ritchie on the right and really looked like they were going to be Bournemouth's most dangerous threat throughout the season. But as with everything Bournemouth, that had to change as injuries started befalling Eddie Howe's club and Simon Francis has had to play most of his time in central defense now. 
This weekend, he made the highlight reels with a clearance off the line. Uh, I can't remember who shot it for Crystal Palace, but it's one of the reasons not only Bournemouth got a victory, but kept Crystal Palace without an official shot on target. And you go, and it looked like, it just seemed to me that Simon Francis was involved in so much this weekend. And when I look through the numbers, he, he led the game in clearances. He led the game in, in uh, aerial duels won. He et- led the game in interceptions. All of these defensive numbers, which out of context mean very little, within the context of this game, just showed how active he was. So I use that as an excuse, in addition to his actual play on the field, and in addition to his story to highlight Simon Francis as one of these unsung heroes for Bournemouth as to why they're now climbing the table when for so long they looked like they were destined for relegation. Nipun? Yeah, mine is a little more obvious. A good shout on Simon Francis, by the way. Um, my, mine is a little more obvious. De Bruyne, uh, two, uh, two assists and a goal in the City game. Uh, the reason I wanted to even bring up De Bruyne was because during the game, I was reading this article on De Bruyne. It's an old article, and um, I encourage our listeners to find it. It's uh, from The Guardian. It was in August. And essentially talked about the fact that De Bruyne had been bought for three times the amount of money that he was sold for by Chelsea, uh, uh, as in City bought him for three times amount the, the money. So uh, what is different this time? And I loved the way they wrote about it because it was a little more a little snarky towards De Bruyne because let's remember Chelsea had just won the league uh, you know, in August and they were considered to be title favorites. So uh, De Bruyne's, it, it was De Bruyne's character that was largely being questioned in the article. Uh, and it goes to show that our narrative in general kind of changes based on the, the events. And if that same author were to write an article on De Bruyne right now, I'm sure his analysis of why Chelsea let him go would be drastically different. But anyway, having said that, De Bruyne, terrific this week and hope he continues uh, to do well because he'll be a big part of that Belgian team. Both him and Sterling and Nicolas Otamendi have been very good signings for Manchester City. And yet each week we come back here and debate whether they should go out and sign even more people. Mm-hmm. Interesting how that works out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of big spenders, let's talk about Kevin De Bruyne's former team. Chelsea was welcoming Goose Heating back to the sidelines this weekend, and they were oh so close to claiming full points, earning a penalty late against visiting Watford when the score was tied 2-2. Oscar's miss means that Goose Heating's return to Stamford Bridge is not a victorious one. But Nipun, talk to me about your thoughts on this game. Did you see a different Chelsea side now that they have a different manager? So yeah, we got one more data point like we thought we would. Uh, differences formation-wise, none. Went 4-3-1. Uh, differences personnel-wise, a little bit. Yeah, I we think saw it was, Cahill and Terry back together. That was kind yeah, of Cahill neat. Yeah, and Terry. Exactly. Something, and something that had become very rare. Very rare, exactly, After, especially based on their early season form under Mourinho. Uh, the other one I want to talk to you about was Hazard. Hazard not starting was interesting to me uh, because, uh, for, first of all, it's possible that it was just fitness-related. Right. We're going to discount that. Uh, assuming that it wasn't fitness-related, do you think it is where Hazard is currently or does does Hiddink actually think of him as one of the players that really did uh, let Mourinho down and is possibly maybe even angling for a move away from uh, Stamford Bridge, which are things we've heard of. I think that's possible. I don't want to go down this path too much for the reasons that you said, but if we were are going to entertain this hypothetical, I think that there is some value in a new manager trying to unite the squad. Mm-hmm. And I think that although the stories that we've read over the last month hint at a different uh inclination within the squad. I think the core of this squad is still a pro Mourinho core. And I think we saw that through not only John Terry's reaction after last week's game, um, after, after their, sorry, the first game after Jose Mourinho had left, but we saw, yeah, yeah, we saw with Cesc Fabregas taking umbrage with people characterizing him as a traitor to Jose Mourinho. I think the core of this team, those players, the Branislav Ivanoviches of the world, the people who are very influential in this club, are are ashamed that it has come to this point. And if you want to rally the club around an attitude, that would be the one. And to get back to Hazard, if you do want to give a sign that the attitude that was prevalent in the last days of Mourinho was unacceptable, mm-hmm. dropping Hazard is dropping Hazard and Costa would probably be the right things. Hazard is easy to drop because you have Pedro coming off the bench. Costa 
Well, even Costa, we heard this uh, over the last couple of weeks, how Costa had fought with Mourinho much of this year, but then over the last couple of weeks have had accepted that he needed to improve his play and started working harder in training. So even then, Costa, I mean, Hazard might be on his island by himself at this point. What do you think, Nipun? I think I think it is... It's interesting to understand why he did that. It could simply be just an end of one and he's just rotating because there's a big game coming up against United as well. Right. And uh, it may be that maybe Hazard isn't injured right now, yeah. but he's coming off his injury and can't play two games in three days. But, but, but it's also interesting to wonder why, why he chose to play Pedro, a player that except for the very first game of the season where I think he had a goal and two assists or something crazy, has done almost nothing all season. Mm-hmm. So to play him ahead of Hazard, um, Maybe we're just reading too much into it, and that's totally a possibility. But I th- did find that interesting, and there are definitely many explanations. And maybe uh, if, if Hazard starts again against United, we can just accept that, okay, this was just squad rotation, or it was the fact that he's come back from injury, all that stuff. But if he doesn't start against United, a game that, at least under hitting, you, you would consider to be a very important game, uh, we can start talking about whether Hazard really is some of the things that Mourinho felt that he was. Potential worrying sign for Chelsea in this one. They got two goals. They outshot Watford 17 to 12. They only got two shots on target. Both of those, go- both of the goals by Diego Costa. The first goal wasn't so much a created goal as it was the second opportunity off a quarter kick. The second, the second goal, good goal though. Uh, let's move on to, let's go to the north, Newcastle and Everton. This looked like a game that Everton had in control until the last 15 minutes or so, where Newcastle had a number of chances, and if it wasn't for Tim Howard pushing a shot off the uh, late header off the line, Newcastle might have been able to steal this one. As is, it was Everton that was able to steal it when Rob Elliott, going out for a corner late, punched a ball to the edge of the penalty area, where Tom Cleverly headed it into an open net from about 17 yards out. So, Nipun, the way I choose to look at this, and tell me if you agree with this, is this is the type of win that we haven't been seeing from Everton much of this year. We talk about how many times they've either had to settle for draws or uh, last week against Leicester losing in a game that they played pretty well. Here is a game that they played pretty well that almost looked destined to be one of those tough road results that you just can't get over the hurdle. They got over the hurdle. Somehow, someway, they got three points. Yeah, football, uh, there's a, you know, cliche, football is a great equalizer. And you think back to the the last minute, the 95th minute goal that Burnman scored on Everton when they were up 3-2 <laughs> to make it 3-3. And you see this goal that my beloved Tom Cleverly scores. And there's some weird poetic justice to that. But before we analyze, I just, I have to say, just heartbreak for the Newcastle United supporters. Um, someone who used to be on the World Soccer Talk podcast, and, and you know, Kristen Hennage and I were talking on Twitter. Uh, and uh, it was, I just felt so bad for him because he was, he was convinced that Newcastle were the better team. And I don't, while I don't think that that is true, if I'm a Newcastle United supporter, I would be so buoyed by what they have been able to do in the last four games on, under McLaren. I think there's been a huge upturn uh, in, in belief in that club. Well, you say that, but then they drew against Aston Villa last week and yep. they lose this one. And I mean, anybody who thinks Newcastle was a better team, God bless them and God bless their black and white heart. They got one shot on target the whole game and we saw Rob Elliott need to make four very good saves to keep them in this. I yeah, well, there were two, you know, there were a couple of really good chats. Mitrovic should have scored uh, mm-hmm. from that header. Wijnaldum should have scored. So th- I see where Chris is coming from, but I do think, I'm with you, I think Everton was the better team overall. Yeah, I, th- I would encourage people to watch the first hour of the game if they think Newcastle was a better team in this one. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and take our last break, come back, give our top fours, talk about the two matches we haven't hit on, and then look forward to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the Premier League. Quick turnaround for the league. It's going to be a quick turnaround for us, too. Stick with us. It's World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This part of the show that elicits so much great, heartwarming feedback from you are top four lists. Nupun, you're up first. On form, Leicester City, even though they lost. Arsenal, Palace, Watford. End of the season, City to win. Arsenal second, Leicester City third. And I know I'm that weird optimist. Not optimist, because I don't want them to finish fourth, but Chelsea fourth. Okay, top on form. This is just a mess. We've talked about this so many times. How yeah. having an on form top four is ridiculous in a league where there is no form that's being maintained. We should just do this for Bundesliga from next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, on form, Spurs one. God, that hurts. I, I don't even know if I believe that. Leicester two, Arsenal three, Watford four. 
All right, I'm moving on with my life. I'm not going to beat myself <laughs> over that. End of season top four. It's the same as last week. Manchester City, Arsenal, Leicester, Spurs. I will say this. I, I talked about it earlier in the show, so I won't repeat. I'm very close to bumping Arsenal to number one for, for new reasons that are starting to surface. And I'm very, very close to bumping Spurs over Leicester. Just by looking at all the numbers and seeing how Spurs seem to have gotten a monkey off their back ever since putting that unbeaten streak behind them. I'm sure they would have preferred not to do that, but it does seem to have alleviated things. They're more free-flowing. They're creating better chances. They're converting on more chances. And if this can kind of propel them through the rest of the year, then the underlying numbers are starting to hint that they may be for real. Quick quick question before we move on. Go. If if City and Arsenal were 100% fit, if they had all their players fit, who do you think would have the better starting eleven? City. Yeah, me too. That's I, I think you can just go position by position, and there's only... One place where I would say that Arsenal is definitely 100% better. Well, two. I would say Petr Cech is definitely 100% yep. better than Joe Hart. But, you know, the margins there are pretty thin. And then I would say I would take Metsut Otsul. The way Metsut Otsul has played this year over any of Manchester City's creators. But Manchester City yeah, has more depth at that position when you consider Silva and De Bruyne. They've got the superior striker. They've got the de- superior defensive midfield. Mm-hmm. If healthy, they have the superior fullbacks and the yeah. superior uh, central defense. I don't even know if it's that close when you think about it that way, but I yeah. think I think I would take uh, Silva over Otsu, but I would take uh, uh, Sanchez over Sterling. That would be my only other change. Yeah, I think Sanchez over Sterling. I would definitely do that, but then I kind of consider the wide attackers as kind of a a package deal, and so mm-hmm. whatever two wide attackers City starts, I like them over the wide attackers Arsenal start. But then again, that just highlights how weird it is to break it down this way. Ultimately, you should probably break it down based on how the teams match up against each other. Yeah. Even then, I like City more than I like Arsenal in that. <laughs> Quickly, two games that we haven't talked about yet: Aston Villa one-one result against West Ham at Villa Park. Jordan Ayew converting a penalty kick in the second half, canceling out Aaron Questwell's goal in the first, a goal that Brad Guzan probably should stop most days. Let's talk about Aston Villa in this one. West Ham have drawn five in a row. They seem to be see- settling into their, their mid-table inev- inevitability. Aston Villa, Remy Gard has outlined a 10-win goal. Get to 10 wins by the end of the season and we can stay up. I just get the feeling that we're seeing their surge now, Nipun, and their surge is only producing draws. Yeah, for me, the, the only team uh, at the start of the season that I predicted would go down that is in, uh, for sure going to go down is Aston Villa. I don't see gen- genuinely see a way back for them. Uh, they have some games coming up that you think they might be able to get points in. They play Norwich, Sunderland, fellow rele- relegation battlers, uh, Crystal Palace, who I think will probably win because uh, they're playing away, uh, as in Crystal Palace will win, and then Leicester City. So... If 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 they get so they play Norwich uh, tomorrow and then Sunderland January second, if they've lost or not got at least one win from those games, I think it's a pretty good indicator that that surge is as you said, just a surge of draws and no wins. Swansea is back in the win column, ninth minute goal from Ki Sung Young. After that, they most underrated midfielder in the Premier League. I tend to be biased towards Asian players for some yeah. reason, so I'm I'm going to bow out of that and just agree with you. Uh, <laughs> ninth minute goal, they kind of handed control of this match to West Brom after that. And to me, Nipun, this just illustrates what you and I have talked about on previous shows. Nipun, uh, West Brom is not going to win a match that you have that you give to them and ask them to win it. They're going to rely on errors. They're going to rely on your mistakes. And in this one, they had a lot of possession, were able to force some set pieces, but even then, they weren't able to convert on them. And in that way, I think West Brom again showed the quality they really have. Yeah, and let's not forget that they're missing. So, as we talked about last week, they play with Evans and Fletcher uh, in midfield. Both are defensively minded players. Uh, and the other one we forgot was uh, the Argentinian whose name I'm forgetting, who's also Claudio Jakub. Jakub, exactly. Who's a very defensively he's a he's a traditional ball winning midfielder. So it, you essentially have four defenders and three defensive midfielders in front of them. And they had Rondon for a bit who was doing well, but now he's suspended. So there's no way for them to really get goals right now. Uh, and Swansea, in my opinion, as we've talked about are kind of the opposite of West Bram. They really do try to score goals. And I think uh, this they should have, Swansea should have won this game by more than just the one goal, which they scored in the 10th minute. And we see Swansea now moving away from some of the preferences that Gary Monk had. 
some of the best examples, both Bafa Timbigomi and John Joe Shelby started this match on the bench. Uh, other, uh, let's move on to the midweek fixtures. They're extended over three days, but the bulk of them take place on Monday, where the action starts with Crystal Palace hosting Swansea. Everton takes on Stoke, while Austin Villa visits Norwich City. Tottenham will go up against Watford, two teams on the rise there. West Brom hosts Newcastle United, and then... The later kickoff time on Monday, Arsenal hosts Bournemouth, Manchester United against Chelsea in the day's marquee matchup, West Ham hosts Southampton. On Tuesday, Leicester hosts Manchester City, and on Wednesday, Sunderland versus Liverpool. Now, let's go ahead and go chronologically here, and let's tar- target the big match on Monday. Manchester United, Chelsea, both teams struggling immensely, but the reason that this one is in the headlines is because of Louis Van Hall. Yeah, will he be there if you ask him? You'll have to see, as he said. Uh, so we, we will see if Louis is... I do not is, need to tell you. Yeah, as I've, said, as I've said many times before in other press conferences, you will have to see. Great insight, Louis. Thanks. Uh, so uh, Chelsea historically have been United's boogeyman team, even, even before the modern day era, uh, back into the days of Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and uh, Petit and all those players. Uh, Chelsea was definitely one of the teams that always troubled for uh, troubled united but lately richard it's been a bore fest between the two teams um we can think back to Mourinho setting up with a false nine in the first game uh well the third game under moyes mm-hmm. uh and there've been only i think two or three goals in the last I can't three believe you reminded me of that game one of the worst, the worst. games in the absolutely worst. I can and remember. the great thing about that richard is i heard uh, i think it was it might have been uh, uh, Rio Ferdinand who was doing some analysis on it and said that it was a brilliant tactical match. And as a, as a footballer, it was great to see these two teams outthinking each other. And I'm pretty sure everyone's eyes rolled at the back of their heads when he said that. It was so bad. One other match of note on Monday, Watford, Tottenham. These are two teams who are climbing the table. We've talked about them a lot in recent shows, and it's a bit of a stylistic matchup that'll be interesting. Uh, Watford's going to play without the ball. Maybe some of Spurs' pressing won't be as needed or as effective, but at the same time, Oriana Galu is going to test that Spurs defense that is starting to get a lot of people trumpeting their virtues. It'll be a good test for them. Troy Deeney, of course, finding a way to get to the penalty spot in every game, but let's switch our focus to two. Tuesday, Leicester City, Manchester City. Great matchup here at Dimpoon. And we've seen Leicester City mature throughout this season. Earlier this year when Arsenal visited them, Arsenal tried to kind of uh, burst their bubble a bit, romped all over the Foxes. But we've seen the Foxes' recent performances against better teams producing results. How do you think this one's going to shake out? Here's a stat I got from Opta. Leicester City ended 2012, 2013, and 14 with a victory in the final league game of the calendar year. In other words, if we go by what Leicester City has been doing previous years, they're going to win. But based on the fact that Leicester City has done exactly the opposite of what they've been doing every year previously, they're probably going to lose to City, Mm. unfortunately. Uh, And maybe at that point, some of us will start talking about, is this the turning point, blah, 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 blah. But again, this won't change my mind about Leicester City. Uh, Again, Manchester City have more to play for in this game than does Leicester City. So we see Leicester City especially this weekend, even though they were chasing the game eventually in this one, more than willing to sit back. They have the fewest passes per game of any team in the league. Their possession is pretty close to the bottom. I think it is the bottom two. And we see a Manchester City team that tends to like to control the ball, tend to like to dictate play, but also have those Achilles heels that we have highlighted so much. Mm -hmm. Those central defenders, they're right back. Just really been very poor this year by Manchester City standards. And you still have Jamie Vardy, and you still have Riyad Mahrez, and you still have Shinji Okazaki running his butt off. Mm-hmm. I, I like this to be a high-scoring one, Nifun, but something is telling me that this is setting up well for Leicester. So you, you, you're gonna, uh, you think Leicester's going to beat City? I am not as confident in this one as I was the Chelsea match. Chelsea came where I said 3-0? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and I think I, I said like 3 nothing, 3-0 for Leicester. It ended up being 2-1. There is an inherent difference in quality in these two yeah. teams, in the, in the players. But Leicester has been defying that all year. I just wonder how they keep defying that when teams start taking them seriously. And obviously, well, I don't want to say obviously, but it sure does seem like teams are taking them seriously now. I just think stylistically, I mean, maybe we're headed for a 2-2 in this one. I don't know. And maybe Manchester City, with their injury concerns, their quick turnaround, 
maybe that hurts them. Lester does have a little bit of depth in the positions that we would think people wouldn't want to get run down, and they go three or four deep at striker. They do have some depth at, at um, their wide midfielders and their fullbacks. I don't know. I guess I would bet this one ends 2-2, Nipun. So what Liverpool did against Leicester was really was interesting, which was different from what United tried to do against Leicester, where they all focused on Vardy. What Le- Liverpool did was they focused on Mares, and it, pretty much if you play this entire game through, you'll see uh, they made sure they were doubling up on Mares, and and they were playing, you know, essentially like they would any forward when it came to Vardy, like so, like Jose Mourinho wanted Chelsea to play Mares. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, if if in, in having said that, I don't know if City has the fullbacks. Um, mm-hmm. I know he, he'll probably be up against Kolarov because he'll play from the right. But if if they decide to switch him, let's be honest, Sanya is playing some of the worst football of his career. Kolarov can be found out uh, defensively. He can have great games, but he can be found out defensively. Um, so with that basis, I kind of see what you're saying. I can see gaps appearing in this. But the uh, counterpoint to that is, there's no one in Leicester's midfield without, especially without Drinkwater, who can stand up to Yaya Toure. I mean, there's almost no one in the world who can stand up to Yaya Toure when he's on form. So, comes back to the same old question: Is it going to be four out of ten Yaya Toure or nine and ten out of ten Yaya Toure? And that will decide the game. Whether it's the four out of ten or the nine out of ten, we are going to be back on Wednesday night in your feeds on Thursday, talking about the midweek action in the Premier League. After that, next Sunday, our weekly review show, Kartik Krishnayar and Lawrence McKenna will be back together again. But until then, for everybody at WorldSoccerTalk.com and Nipun Chopra, I'm Richard Farley, imploring you to enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at worldsoccertalk.com. <laughs>